informed of cancellation, like people not showing up. So it was going to be a small group. Yeah. It's just like my college classes. The later the semester goes, the less people show up. Yeah. I don't take it personal. It's okay. Like, <laughs> yeah. 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 All right. So, yeah, this is the last, the last one. So, um, I think at the end we'll, we've kind of discussed some ideas of what we're going to do for the next, next one. Um, we had talked about doing like one in the fall and two in the spring, and now we're like one in the fall and one in the spring. This has been a lot of work. So it's been good work. It's just not as qu- it didn't fall out as quickly as I think it was gonna fall out. So that's fine. It's been I don't know. I've been having fun. Hope you've been having fun too. So it's been helpful. It's been helpful for me. So okay. So we'll go ahead and pray and then get into this. God, we are so grateful that you have revealed yourself to us, Lord, that you not left us groping in the dark to wonder who you are, God, but you have shown yourself to us, Lord, that you have drawn us into a community of believers. Lord, and your spirit works in and among us, God. You um, equip different people in different ways, and um, that, that is your blessing to us, Lord, that we can come and rely on each other as we rely on you as we rely on your word, Lord. So we pray that you would help us um, as we come to study about your word, Lord, that you would that you'd bless it. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so um, so this was the part that I meant to... So when we talked about all the kings and who conquered who, um, this is the part, like, I just realized really quickly I was not going to get to if I was going to get through all the kings. So... So, uh, they say to understand, like a culture, you need to learn its language, which, be that true or be it not, I don't know. Um, But part of it is, one of the things I began to realize from, like, hearing from people who studied this stuff at far more depth than I do, there's some really cool things that that have helped me. And this is pretty much the the whole way I've been thinking through this whole thing. There have been stuff that have helped me, and I'm just trying to pass it on to you so I can help you. So, it's not like I'm... Like, believe me, not all that creative in my thinking. So I'm just reliant on other people's really uh, hard work and creativity and thinking and thinking through this stuff. So um, so we're going to talk about Old Testament genres. We talked a little bit about New Testament. And I'm not, so when we did New Testament genres, BJ did the kind of like, why, why genre anyway? So like, um, I, don't, I don't think culture was an afterthought for God. Like, hmm, let's create people and see what happens. And I stand back, I wonder what's going to happen. Oh, culture, right? I think that, that was, it seemed like that was part of the game plan, that at the, end of the, at the end of history, people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people, right? So, and like, you think about all those, like, those are all indicators of, like, socioeconomic peoples, tongues, languages, cultures. Um, everything that is created, you think about, um, like, from the mighty pyramids to our skyscrapers like all these things were in a sense i don't like i don't think it was a surprise to god that this happened like these were the resources that he knew that he embedded in this earth and he said be fruitful and multiply and go and subdue the earth like all these things i think it's i mean culture itself is meant to glorify god and it's meant to be enjoyed and so it doesn't surprise me then that god didn't just like write down a single like okay so this is the writing style that you're gonna have like they're like 
there's poetry, there's lament, there's all these different types of genre. And I, and some people like to say the fact that we say that God spoke through these different genres is like, uh, mankind, like being anthrop, like being anthropomorphic. Like we're trying to project our mannishness onto God or some creation of, of God. And I think it's actually quite the other way around. That in a sense, like God has projected his image upon us. And so, like we speak because God speaks and we are creative because God's creative and he gave that to us. In, in the beginning in Genesis chapter 2, when it's, um, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, so one of the things that, um, actually not, I didn't get into this, so it's not in the notes, but I've always like, what does it mean to bear the image of God? Like, that to me has always been, I don't think, because if you, like, study theologians, like, it's clearly stated that we're made in the image of God. Like, the, the statement's true, but then there's not actually a lot of explanation. Like, footnote, by the way, image of God means, fill in the blank. So people, like, have pondered this for a long time. It's like, well, what do you mean, made in the image of God? And um, one of the clues, so, so like, I don't know the history of the development of, like, this whole argument, but one of the things is, if the Bible says something and it's clear, like, and it states it without explanation, then it means that it must have been clear to the people that God was speaking to. So when we said, image of God, they were like, oh yeah, cool. And they moved on. And like, now us, like, whatever, thousands of years later, going like, so, about that image thing? What did you mean by that? And so, it's, and it's really, it's really interesting because, um, so, so people said, okay, let's dig around the culture, let's dig around their writings and see where this idea of image of God kind of gets, gets used. And so, um, looking around, it seems like the, the idea of the image of God had to do with like kings, great kings who'd be sitting on the throne. They were, they were like, think about like the pharaohs who were like these mighty god God slash men. They, they bore like, they're the representation of God on this earth. And, and there's like one, like one pharaoh who gets to be the image bearer of God in this case. And so oftentimes the king, oftentimes it's priest kings, and most of, and almost, I should probably say like uh, almost 100% of the time, it seems like it was men, and powerful men at that. Whereas when the Bible says that he created man and woman in the image of God, like he totally flipped that whole paradigm around. He says like, first of all, it's not a image bearer, like humanity, every person bears the image of God, and that's, and so, and that's male and female. This is like, the, the quote-unquote commoner to the king, all of them possess that which, like, which makes, like, pretty much that which makes, like, man great. Everyone possesses that. And one of the things, too, that these image of God bearers would be is that it was, like, this idea of a vice regent. Like, so, could God have built skyscrapers? Yes. Right. Not a problem. If he created this whole universe, that would not have been a problem for him. But in a sense, like, God has chosen to, so he sets up the world, and, and he creates all these animals, and then he sets the man and woman to rule over it. To, like, to almost, in a sense, like, act, like, like, he, in a sense, like, he acts in and through them to rule over his creation through humanity. So God himself, in a sense, he didn't, like, he rules from, like, sovereignly, but in a sense, he puts man and woman to be, like, king and queen. And to rule over this. And so the vice region, so like God is working in and through, just the way he works in and through his church. Like he gifts people. Like, could God come down and preach a better sermon than me? Yep. Right? But some, for some reason, like he chooses to work in and through us. And so, um, at the end of the day, the greatest 
human is Jesus Christ, who is the image of God par excellence. And, and we are like, in a sense, and so like that's crazy in and of itself, but then like when, when Christ create, like dies and he raised again and we die and we raise again, it says we're raised up into Christ into this new humanity, like we are in a sense integrated into who Christ is. So it says like, that we are part of the body of Christ. So like when Christ works through his people, like it's God working. Which again, is mind-boggling, like that's the way he would choose to do it. And so like fast forward into eternity, when it says in 1 Corinthians, I'm flying off the top 10, as I was like, why are you guys taking yourselves to law, like putting yourselves in lawsuits, right? Because you yourself, do you not know that you will rule the angels or judge the angels? You know, like, do what? Like, in a sense, like, isn't that, you know, in a sense, like, isn't that a place, like, but isn't that a seat that we do not belong in, right? But Christ, in a sense, brings us with him in that, in that ruling. So, um, with, with a, so, like, informed speculation, like, like, what we will be into all eternity would be, in, in one sense, everything that Adam and Eve were supposed to have been, but failed to do. And that God will work in and through us, because that last word, in, in Revelation, not the last word, but like the last statement, where it says, like, and they shall worship him forever. And I always thought, like, when I was a kid, like, 10 o'clock, having existential crisis at night, like, like, oh my gosh, what's eternity? Oh my gosh, like, what is that? And it's like, they'll worship the other, and I've just, like, got this, like, glowy, golden sphere upon which, like, I'm just bowing down for the rest of eternity. Like, and it's not, not like, and then you're trying not to be, like, not to be, like, I don't know, God, like, irreverent here, but, like, sounds boring, right? And so, so, what was helpful to learn is, like, the, the Bible has different words for worship, so there's worship as in like, there's a worship that says you fall on your face and you worship. There's a worship that says like vocally you praise or sing and unto God. And then there's another word for worship that was used of the priests. Um, so when you're a priest and you got called, so you get called in the shifts and you'd work for a certain amount of time. And you said, okay, you know, Zachariah, it's your turn to go in the temple. What are you going to do? You're going you're gonna to sweep and dust. Can you dust the mantle over there? Thank you. And so, and so all these people are doing all the upkeep. Now some get like the, the prestigious positions of getting to like to do the sacrifices and all that but but most of it was just like pure drudgery housework ish sort of stuff and, and the bible calls that worship like them taking care of the temple grounds taking care like work work like god was calling that worship and and in in greek um it's latreo and we see it in romans 12 like, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy except of God, which is your spiritual worship. So it's worship as in, like, what you do as a person, like, the actions that you do, like, you get, like, that is worship unto God. And so the last word, again, about worship in Revelation is, again, latrueo. So when you serve God into eternity, you are working, serving. Like, you're, you're, you're like, this is where we speculate, right? Act in the way that Adam should have acted. And God breaks in on that. So, so, and this all coming from like, so like from bookend to bookend, we have this idea where God had placed us into this world to, to rule and to rule it well. So when the, when the king goes corrupt, you, you remember, you notice that theme in the histories, like where goes the king, so goes the people. When the king goes corrupt, then the people go corrupt. And when the king goes good. And, and like in the same sense, like when God set Adam and Eve over the garden, like, when the king goes corrupt, then so went all of nature. 
and God cursed it and said, you know, and, and all the effects of the fall from that point on. So, um, these studies of like, so like that whole idea, so we can speculate, well, I wonder what image of God means. Um, or you can say, okay, what did the image of God mean to those people? Like, what's, what's the surrounding, like, what are, what do the texts around, like, in that culture all say about image of God? How does that inform us? Okay. So some of that happens. Some of this comparative. Like, you can look around. So when we get, like, some of the stuff we'll talk about, like, here's what other texts said. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean, though, like, you have to be careful that you don't say, well, like, that the Jews or the Israel believed exactly as the nations did. Because there obviously is going to be differences, right? So um, it's helpful to get context, although it doesn't necessarily override um, the meaning of the text as it's stated in the Bible. That comes first. But if you get stuck on something, that's a good way to go. By the way, the word image is idol. Same word. So, like, you shall not make any graven images or graven idols. And so, it's like, got, like, chew on that for a while. <laughs> that would that, not be an easy one. So, all right. Narrative. Okay, so we're going to go just go to these genres. So now, narrative. Um, a large part of the Bible is narrative. Not the greatest part, though. The greatest part of the Bible is poetry. Uh, so, but narrative is a lot of it. So the purpose of narrative is telling a story about what's happening through history. Because, and here's a quote here, I couldn't find the rich. I know someone said this. and I, I know Kathy Keller, who's like Tim Keller's wife. Anyways, she, she wrote this article. I remember this, this point sticking out. Quote, Christianity is nothing if it is not historical. Like, because it's... Our, like, our religious system is not like how, okay, what principles do I need to follow to get right with God? It's the other way around. God, it's a story about God coming to earth to save us. Like God working in history to save his people. So, in other words, the, princi- the prin- principles are important, but like the, c- the core of the story is that Jesus Christ came. And that the core of the story is that, like, here is man created, fell, and God redeems. Okay, th- those are all historical facts. So if, like, if this is all like mythology, then, this, then the Christianity means nothing. You, you strip it of the one point that makes it what it is, which is God is there and he is acting in history. So it's important then that the Bible contains narrative, that you know, like, because so, sometimes I think, I'm like reading through the Kings, like, why do I need to know this? Like, this is like weird. It's like, or not helpful to me, but like, if, if nothing else, if like, if I'm reading through a passage of the Kings going, I don't know what to make of this, I can make for at least one thing. Like, God is acting with really stupid people of heart, well, I'm kind of one of them, right? That God works through these people who are sinful, and like, he gets like this, this people group that should have by all rights been wiped out like time and time again. He gets it from like point A to point Christ, right? And Christ comes, and then it spreads to the world. All right, so one of the distinguishing features of the Bible is this, that it's the specificity of which it speaks. So I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read some stuff from, like, just until we get, like, the idea of it. Um, when I was taking, I, I've mentioned a couple times that class with that, that archaeologist who works in Israel who specializes in Canaan, his PhD is in Canaanite paganism or something like that, so, like, you gotta get a PhD in something, right? Okay. So like that was his field. And like he goes around and he's digging stuff out. Like he's he right now he's working on like he found this um like water tunnel. And like he's excited. <laughs> like, 
I was trying to see. I think I think the part was like just how big it was. Like it was bigger than they ever thought the Canaanites were ever capable of building. So like he's digging this whole thing up, and it's really important. Um, but we, we we took this class with him, and like he totally was setting us up. Like he he'd be sitting there, like in in a sense, like oh you know you got a story about a flood. Well, so do other cultures. Like oh yeah, you got narrative. Yeah, so do other cultures. Oh like um, the story of a snake. Like oh. I'll, Cultures have a story of a snake. And at first you're like, huh, like, should I be concerned? And so and he let us, and he's like, yeah, just go, I, I give you a book, just go read it. Like, which is, is a book, it was this one particularly, um, which is like collections of writings that they've collected from these people. Like, so the, the parallel cultures at the same time. And so, so uh, here we are, like, kind of like, huh, I wonder if you should be concerned. So you go and you open your book, and you're like, I'm not concerned. Like, I was like, I like, I realized what his setup was because when we came back and talked, I was like, so, like, these are narratives, yes, but these are like so different than the Bible. The Bible is like on its own, like it's it's like it's like it's doing it's it's like it's a trend breaker. Like it's talking about like it talks about this guy named Abraham at this place at this time bought this piece of land for this much money. It's like all these really specific details of which like no other religious text even comes, like, even, even close. Most of the time, most of the texts are talking about one of two things. Either, like, what the gods are doing up in the heavens, not, have no conversation about what's going on on earth, um, or um, which king conquered which king. <laughs> like, and, like, how much, like, tribute they extracted from it, or what great big thing they built. And so, like, this, this like, God interacting with normal, everyday people, like, that is unlike any other. So much so that, like, some, like, people looking back on this said, well, then the Bible probably was written much later than you guys are saying it is. Because this style of writing doesn't show up until getting close to the time of Herodotus, the first great kind of narrative historian who tells stories that are kind of really cool. Um, but, so, Herodotus. So, like, obviously then, like, kind of, like, the, the Bible was either you took some cortex and you just kind of backtracked and told a bunch of stories around it to match historians like Herodotus, or it was written all the time Herodotus. And you're like, because, you know, the Bible can't be different than anything else written by man. So, um, so I guess there's this disbelief that like this level of specificity exists in a religious text. Um, and so our acknowledgement is like, no, no, that was the whole point, that God works with people. Okay, so the similarities are, I have them listed on this front page, um, creation stories, the origin of mankind, alienation from the gods, I have to say gods because only Israel had a singular god, and floods with a new start. Um, other motifs that are similar, like like you said, everybody has stories of snakes, um, there are stories involving, or um, you know, this idea of like a holy of holies and like a temple, like every culture had holies of holies, so it's like, you're not, we're not the only temple with a holy of holies, but, you know, what happens at the holy of holies? Now that's different, right? All the holy of holies would have this gar- like super life-size Im- uh, idol, like, because remember in uh, Samuel, when the ark was stolen and they put it in the temple and it's assumed in the holy of holies where like the, you know, the god was sitting there, a fish god, and then they come in the next day and, like, the idol had been tipped over and its hands cut off or something like that. Um, 
So, like, in, in the pagan temples, you have the Holy Holies with their, like, life-size or larger-than-life statue of your god. Um, but then, like, you go in the Holy Holies if you have the opportunity. The Holy Holies to go into the Holy Holies for the Jewish people, and all you saw was a footstool. Like, you didn't get, like, God, him, God was not an idol. You could see where he puts his foot. Like, that, like, that's how the intersection exists. And in fact, in the, as you worked your way into the temple, like, you'd be walk, working, and you'd see, uh, if you walked into the temple, there was, like, the curtain separating the holy place from the most holy place, inscribed with, like, these cherubim. And so, with, like, their wings touching. And so you saw, like, this image of it, and then you, if you went in, then you actually saw, like, the, the like, the idols, like, the golden statues of the angels. So you went from, like, two-dimensional to three-dimensional, and then God's, like, non-dimensional. Like, he's, like, not even in your dimension, people. Like, the angels could be, like, represented by these gold statues, and you have, like, some picture of them, but not God. So, like, that, that is something that's different in terms of that. Um, I'm going to, like, read, it's gonna, I'm not, not promising a good time, and I'm not going to read a lot of it, like, creation story, um, or the creation of the world here. Oh, this is creation of man. All right. All right, so this is second millennium, the epic of Atracasis. And it says, uh, quote, so thus reads their holy scripture, okay? So, quote, when the gods like men bore the work and suffered the toil, the toil of the gods was great. The work was heavy, the distress was much. The seven great Anu- Anunnaki were making the Igigi suffer the work. Anu, their father, was king. Their counselor was the warrior Enil. Their chamberlain was Nadruta. Their sheriff was Anugi. That's, sheriff is probably an, like, a little anachronistic, but okay. The gods had clasped hands together, had cast lots and divided. Anu had gone up to heaven, the earth to his subjects, the bolts, the bar of the sea they had given to Aniki, the prince. Anu had gone up to heaven, the Aniki had gone up to Apsu. Um, gap, because... The thing was broken. All the mountains they counted, the years of the toil, the great marshes, they counted the years of toil, excessive for 40 years they worked night and day, and they were complaining, backbiting, grumbling, and excavation. Let us confront our chamberlain that he may relieve us of our heavy work. The counsel of the gods, the hero, come and let us unnerve him in his dwelling. And Neil, the counsel of the gods, the hero, let him come down and unnerve him in his dwelling. Um, so some skipping, but it jumped to good times because then they're saying, let us kill him. And let us break the yoke, and he opened his mouth to the gods of his brothers, the chamberlain of the god. Old time, the council of God, the hero, come, let us unnerve him in his dwelling. Okay, so uh, apparently what's going on is the gods are working and they don't like it. And so they get in this fight with, like, the head god, like, okay, we're going to come down and, like, kill you and break your yoke so we don't have to work anymore. And then some of them, actually one of them comes up with this great idea. Uh, it says, um, so there's this goddess, uh, Belit Eli, who's the birth goddess. And it says, um, quote, let her create humanity and let him bear the yoke. <laughs> I've got an idea. Let's make underling slaves. Like, because, like, heaven forbid, like, they're all upset, like, main god made them do work, and they're like, well, that's unjust. Hey, I got an idea. Let's make people make them do our work, because that's just. And so then, um, so they go about creating... Um, let's see. Where is it? Okay, so then she's like, okay, so they get her involved, 
And so the great Anuki who administered the destinies on the first, seventh, and fifteenth day of the month, he made a purifying bath. Wa'ela, who had a personality, they slaughtered in their assembly. So he took a god and he killed it. Uh, him or her, I'm not sure. So I said it. Um, oh, his. From his flesh and blood, meant to mix clay. From the rest, they heard the drum. From the flesh of the god, there was a spirit. It proclaimed living man as its sign, so that this was not forgotten. And there was a spirit. And after she had mixed the clay, she summoned the Anuki, the great god, the Igigi, and the great gods, spat upon the clay. Mammy opened her mouth and addressed the great gods. You commanded me a task, I have completed it. You have slaughtered a god together with his personality, and I have removed your heavy work. And you've imposed your toil on mankind. You raised a cry for humanity, and I have loosed the yoke. I have established freedom. They heard this speech of hers, and they ran together and kissed her feet, saying, We formerly used to call you Mammy. Now let's now let your name be mistress of all the gods. And they entered the house of destiny with the prince Ea and the wise Mammy. And it goes on and on and on. Um, then they get tired. Um, Humanity's too noisy, so they decide to wipe them out. And then one of the gods kind of says, "Well, you know, I kind of like them do my work, so let's not kill them. So let me spare them." And then, so, and then, like, just it's like this. And so, like, that's what you're. And so they have like their flood epic, is kind of similar to that. So, um, right. And and so they have like lists of other ones like this, and it's pretty much the same. You you can feel free to borrow this or read it on the break or something. Um, and then, like, I've always wondered, and this is a little, little tongue-in-cheek, I've always wanted to be a Roman Catholic apologist, like someone who has to defend, like, man, can you imagine, like, everything a pope has ever said? Because, like, I mean, that's on my end, because I don't think popes speak from God. Um, so, like, you somehow have to, like, knit together all these things that all these people have been saying for all these centuries. And I think, like, what a hard job that's got to be to try to make this all make sense. When you have a bunch of fallible people, um, especially ones who are like living in like outright immoral lifestyles, like they can't get married, so they have mistresses. Like that's more holy or something like that. And like, and now you've got to try to piecemeal us all together to make some coherent statement. And I always thought like that's got to be a tough job. Well, and then I read this, I'm like, oh my gosh, it's even tougher because like you have all these gods. So there's like head gods, sub gods, slave gods, working gods, like basically humanity, in a, in a sense. Um, and then like when one god would like, when one nation rise up, like, your God must be better than my God. So then they have to, like, go, like, and create a whole epic that explains how your God was actually the head God when all things were created. Or, like, your God, like, well, it was the one, but, yeah, all the gods got tired of that God, right? And they killed, like, they dethroned them, and then, like, Mammy became the head God because she created humanity. And, like, you give some other reason why, you know, your God's now the head God. And so, like, you, you've got to somehow, like, kind of keep all this piece together. And you're just like, man, it's got to be tough. All right, Yes. Yep. Uh Right. 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 Right.
God puts within us a yearning to search for a God. Is that what all these people are doing and all this mythology stuff that they kind of type Sam Dennis in high school? <laughs> because, you know, to me I never understood why are all these people searching for this God? Right. And when you read this, were these statues or real people that, that man and lady and all that? So they would make like little, like you could find little carved images that people would have, right? And then you apparently hear of like bigger images in their writing. So <laughs> I mean, so it seems like yeah. Apparently, God has that same complaint with them. Like, um, so this God didn't you, didn't you just cut down? Yeah. Right. Like, like I don't know. Like, I, what, what's like, what was going on in their minds when they did this? Like, I don't like. We can't necessarily say because we weren't there. Um, like, like religious practice permeated everything they did. Right. So, like, down to the crops. Like, they were, they had like fertility rituals to make sure the crops worked. So it wasn't. So for them, it wasn't purely make-believe. They, they felt like there was some intersection between the gods and life. And that you had to like do things to make the gods happy. Right. Right. So, as to like what, like as of like how they created these things? Okay, which actually in First Corinthians chapter ten, I keep saying First Corinthians ten. They can't all be in ten, but okay. <laughs> There's eleven. Um, Paul equates idol worship with demon worship, so it could very well be that there is like powers at play. Um, the other thing is. Um, so then also, like, why do they all have these common themes, right? And one, one of the things I always thought, like, because, like, okay, if there were events in the not-too-far past, right? So you're only talking, like, a couple, like, I mean, I don't know how far the centuries passed here, but, like, if they all have these common roots, it could be because they all, like, as cultures experience these common experiences. They all came from the same. So, like, the reason why there's snakes is because... There was a snake. The reason why there was a flood and all these stories is because there was a flood. And all, yeah. So all those things, like, so there were, like, these events, and then um, how else do you explain some of these things? Answers, right. And it could be, like, and also corrupt, like, maybe, like, just corrupted stories. Like, maybe that, like, because if, if, like, assuming the biblical narrative is true and you've got families, right? And you, and, like, you know, there's, there's like, um, you've got Adam, and then you've got, like, Noah, right? So all these people have a common story, and then they all kind of branch off, and then the stories vary and change, right? So it could just be, like, some of that. Like, they know, like, there's an absolute acknowledgement that there is, like, that the divine exists. That there is, like, this world. Um, we as a culture, like, don't, I think, start there. So it's just so foreign to us, right? Because, like, the common explanation from our culture and we're the, we're the abnormality, really, compared to the rest of history, is that um, all, there's all these contradictions, therefore there is no divine 
there are no immaterial forces at play. So we try we try to explain it all with science and like there's like he says just trying them like them trying to make sense of their environment and and trying to manipulate it manipulate it by manipulating the gods. It's the best I could do. Yeah. Like for us, like so you and so um, right. So there's like copies of like divine incantations where you've got to get like. You've got to speak, you know, you have to like, okay, what God are you going for? Okay, like how are you going to get this God to like do what you want? And then you got to make sure you honor the God with their 57 names correctly and then like do all these things um, in order to have a bumper crop or something like that. And Yeah, and so they, I mean, they probably employed. <laughs> like, we, we didn't. <laughs> yeah. No, no, that's the thing. Like, and they, but they didn't have TV, so. <laughs> I mean, what do you do at night? <laughs> like, so, right. So, yeah, in, in a priestly class, right? Yeah. It seems, it seems like, yeah, that these people exist, prophets and priests from other cultures, right? Yeah, like that's one of the things. Like I have, like I have to be careful. Like, and even with reading the stuff, like this is like ridiculous. Like, how did, like, how did you get here? Because, like, you know, from being sophisticated twenty first century America, I'm like, like this, like, of course you're all imbeciles, right? But um, yeah, like, but like, kind of respecting the fact that some, like, this is probably more real to them that I'm willing to give them credit for. Yeah, yeah. What did the atheists say about us? <laughs> right. So, okay. So differences between um, what we're saying, what the Bible has to say about God and God. So like they're like, so that's like just specificity. Like that's a major difference. Like they're actually so like this is this God talked to Abraham at this time, this place, told him to go here, bought with this money, like shekels, and like they like all this stuff is narrowed down. Um, <clears throat> Okay, this is side. I was gonna say, and they, if they backtrack, they can, they can tell, like, you know how they try to figure out buying power of dollars, like, you know, what would your dollar be in like 1905? Like, they backtracked buying power of silver, um, and say, like, how much buying power did silver have at these different points? And they, in the unfortunately, the way they track that is like, how much does a slave cost? Like, that's something that's always like trans. Those are transactions that you can find lots of. Like, how much silver were they paying for these individuals? And so they can tell, like, how much buying power silver has, like, and kind of, like, throw it backwards. And, like, the price, for example, that Abraham pays for his plot of land to bury his wife matches the buying power that we estimated from that time. So it's, like, stuff like that. It's like, oh, that's kind of helpful, right? So, um, and I don't think, well, I don't think they were doing that when they would have hypothetically created this from scratch, like, in, like, 180 B.C., so specificity, focus. So many of these texts exist to magnify kings and dynasties. Like, okay, so why do 
you get to be the great clan king of this area. It's like, well, because my God is greater than your God. And let me tell you a story why. Right, so it's all about like how God deals with the, in, the, in this massive scale versus the Bible, like God is dealing with like the undertrodden of the world. And like some nobody named Abraham, like working class person. Like God's like, okay, through you I'm going to create a nation. And then you have, um, he's, and he's always being subversive to the fact like, think about how many times the firstborn doesn't get the firstborn like privileges. And like how God allows like the second, like that stuff like that like he's like God is like not playing by the cultural game in which the Bible exists like he's not saying like why is you know what you would expect is like why the Bible is supporting this person being the great person but instead he exalts the lowly um, the nature of God of course is like a major difference because um, like it's the, as far as we can tell it's the only monotheistic religion. Um, and then part of, like, if everybody has their gods, like, one of the things you'd say is, like, okay, so he, this is our plot of land, and our god is great in this plot of land. You can have your god over in your plot of land, but my plot of land, this is my god in his land. Okay, and so, um, and then there's, like, the way you could probably think of, like, city, county, state, countries, is kind of the way you could think about, like, these gods, like, the gods of a city versus the gods of country versus the god of, uh, like, and so they have, like, different layers to these gods, but the, but the one thing you can do, like, is, like, like tread through land, and, like, you're changing gods, and you just have to recognize that. Um, so gods were very territorial. So remember I, I mentioned um, when Israel was kicked out of Samaria, and Babylon planted people in Samaria, and then God sent lions to, like, attack them because of their idolatry, and say, oh, no, we have offended the local deity. What shall we do? Right? And so they, like, bring a, bring another, bring a priest back to tell us how we might... Please this God. So in their minds, and then um, if you think about Elijah on Mount Carmel, and they're having the big showdown with Baal versus Yahweh, and um, one of the things about it is that uh, the, the, the chosen location was Baal's high place, not Yahweh's high place. So he's like, I'll tell you what, like, I'll take every underdog advantage, disadvantage I will take, including I'll go to your God's residency and like, have a showdown and see how it performs. So, um, versus God who says, so you have this God, this God and his, so there, there's two main names that God goes, there's lots of like titles that he's given, but like there's two main names, uh, Elohim and Yahweh. Okay, Elohim, um, singular is El. Um, and El is God. And Elohim is plural. So God takes on for himself like, like, I'm not just, um, like, just a God God. I'm, like, greater. So he calls himself Elohim, like, as a plural word. Which, that's not, so, so one of the things that you do, like, apparently Russians do this. Um, if you, I'm assuming, I don't know Russian. Does anybody know Russian? Because I might just totally, someone who knew Russian told me this. That when you refer to someone who is, like, like, superior than you, and you want to get, like, your grandpa, you would refer to them in the plural at times, as, like, a, a name of respect and dignity. And so, like, it's, and so, there's some surprising similarities between like Russian language culture stuff and some Hebrew Russian language stuff. They share some uh, letters in common, even. Um, so like some of that you could say like so God is a, like Elohim. He's not saying I I am myself like a bunch of pagan gods lumped into one. Like I am the one true God because he refers to himself in the singular. So I am like, the one true God, 
but like, but he refers to him as Elohim, so he's like great, not just like any L God. Um, he is transcendent. Oh, I should, no, I should finish that thought. I'm sorry, Elohim. So when God talks to nations, he refers himself as like, if, if you're coming to him, it's Elohim. But if you're in his community, he goes by Yahweh. It's his covenant name to his people. We'll get, to, get more on that in a second. But like, so that there's a distinction. Secondly, so the transcendence of God. So um, God is two things we say transcendent and eminent. So transcendent means he's so far above us. So separated from us. Like holy, holy, holy. Like he's not just like one degree separate. He's like, he's like so far beyond us. Yet at the same time, it baffles your mind. He, he comes close to us and he involves himself in a way that we can understand and relate to. So he's eminent. So transcendence, eminence. So in a sense, like the pagan deities, yeah, yeah, they have their heavenly war thing going on, but like their nearness to humanity, like, like they act like humans, they talk like humans, they bicker like humans, they kill each other like humans, they do all these things like humans, right? They're just little demigods, right? They're just like little, like, Glorify people just doing things. Um, gods get tired, they need sleep, they need to go to the bathroom. Um, you had to feed your God, literally. Like, they put food in front, like, you had to feed your God to keep your God happy. Like, okay. So, in a sense, like, so that's the idea of transcendent. And God's like, I need none of this. I don't need your riches. I don't need your money. I have a cattle on a thousand hills. Don't need it. And so, like, so there's this transcendence. Um, and then his eminence. It's like, so the pagan deities were eminent in the sense that you had your little idol, and like, and it like manifest, well, so now you have your idol that you can kind of communicate. So a temple was, to that culture, a place where heaven and earth meet, and then like, you meet your little deity via the idol. Um, so, and then in a sense, like the pagans themselves, like, um, like, there's like this story of the Baal cycle where like where the gods are like just as fascinated by weather patterns and like the cycles of the earth as man is and like and there's and like so so in a sense like like not only the gods like not really high in terms like far from us they're also when they come close you're like like what is this like you're a little piece of wood who doesn't know any more about the weather than i do right so who are you and then in their eminence, there's also like they have their region. Like, and so wait, you're telling me your God can't go over here? Right. Okay, God says, I'm everywhere, actually. I can go everywhere. I can do whatever I please. I'm not restricted by other gods. Like, I don't have to ask another God's permission. I don't squabble with other gods. Like, he makes all these, in Isaiah, all these comparisons about me versus other gods who are not gods. And so, like, so God makes, so like, the, the claim that Israelites said, our God rules the earth. And, then, and so then the nation looks at him and goes, yeah, you're a tiny people. Explain that, right? How are you? And he's like, no, no, it's just who God is. Like, he rules the earth and he does whatever he pleases. So, um, the, okay, so it's called the aseity or pre-existence of God. Okay, so aseity means pre-existence. So like, 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 it's one of those like, conundrums, like, okay, we exist because God gives us life. Like the, and this, so God Himself, like, who gives God life? Nobody. That's one of the things. Like, I exist in my own being. His His name, His covenant name is Yahweh. Okay, so which sounds so highfalutin to us, right? Yahweh is like, what? Well, 
what a profound name, right? Okay, in their language, like they use like that word all the time because it's it's a to be verb. Like uh, it's a be like I am. Like so, like all those verbs that we like use in all of our language. Like so, when God describes himself with his name, he describes himself as a to be verb, a verb of existence. Like it's like I am. So literally, when they say I am who I am, it's like like God doesn't describe himself with a noun. He describes himself as like the most like core idea of what a verb is. Like God is who he is. I just am. And so like he he takes that upon himself. Okay. In contrast, like all these deities have origin points and origin stories. So, um, this is Native American mythology, but I remember I was in a cosmos class um, talking about, basically, Big Bang evolution at HSU. Really interesting class. And um, we had to do, like, each of us had to do a class project, and this one person came in, they didn't want to do any science-y thing, and he said, that's fine. So they said, well, I want to tell you an origin story from, like, Native American culture. And I'm like, oh, great. And they actually had a video where, like, some people had acted, like, put on costumes. It was, like, really elaborate. And it's a story about how the earth got created. And, and it's like this crow comes to, like, this fox. And then the crow is sneaky. And then they opened up this box. And the box somehow the world comes out. And a river flowed. And, like, Pandora's box kind of thing. And I said, it was like, you know, okay. And then, like, and so they finish it. And, they finish, and, the, and the professor goes... He's like, you know, one thing I really appreciate about that story versus the, like, the creation of, the Christian creation is it actually has, like, explanation for, like, why things are. Instead of, like, in the beginning, God. Like, like to me, like, like, how ridiculous do you get? Like, versus, like, this is explaining how I'm like, where did the crow come from? Like, <laughs> where did the, where the box come from? Where the, like, this is, like, silly. Like, where did all this stuff come from? It's already there, and there's already these, Deity's like, yeah, yeah. So like like I'm not sure why that floats your boat better, but okay. Like um so like that and that's the kind of thing they have. Like God existed before all time and before all creation. And so um and these other gods don't get that claim. Oh, and apparently pagan deities could be killed in heaven. You might argue that Jesus died. Well, in his humanity he died. Um in his deity he did not die. But these gods and their deity could die. Oops. Like, like we want to make mankind kill a deity, right? Rip their spirit from them and um, create people. And finally, uh, a ban on magic. So God, so God will not be manipulated. You cannot force God's hand. And so like all these like, like these rituals, like here's all the ways you get bumper crop. Um, fertility practices and like burning your kids. Like, if you're really desperate, you burn your kids to Moloch, and all these things, all these magical spells, and all these incantations, all these things. Like, God says, uh, you're not going to be involved in this sorcery. Why don't you just ask me? Right? Come, like, come, come and pray. Right? Now, true, there was, like, the sacrificial system, but that was, like, the, the, that whole point was, like, I want to be in community with you. Here's what it takes. Forgiveness. Okay? But once you're in community with me, ask me. Pray to me. Like, you can do that. But don't try to armbar me. They have bad things happen when you try to force God to act. So, okay, so those, there's a little bit of, in way of, like, cultural analysis. Okay, now in terms of narrative, and then I'll wrap up this unit and we'll take a break and then finish. Um, when you're reading the Bible, especially on the, the Hebrew side of it, so, I, I talk about narrative structures. So, like, Linear. That's the way we think as a culture. We think 
A, then B, then C. No, maybe fl- don't don't do doing flashbacks. You do a flashback a couple times. I'm gonna get upset at the show, right? So like, you just want things lined up in order, okay? And the Bible will do that. At times, like chronology marches on because you're marching through time. Um, at other times, though, they kind of employ what's called a chiastic. That's what they call it. So I'm just telling you, the chiastic structure, which is basically A B B A, um, and I think like when I was thinking when I so. First of all, this can be overdone. Like, I've seen, like, over open commentaries where they try to break down chiastic structures, and you're like, like, whoa, like, A, B, B, C, C, C prime, D, D, E, F, G, G, like, you know, like, this super, like, complex structure. You're like, you know, I think you might be overdoing it a bit to make it work. Like, you want to see a chiasm, so you do it. Um, but there is, like, some, like, in a broad sense, like, these things exist. So, um, Jesus had, Jesus spoke in a chiasm once, um, don't throw your swirls, uh, pearls before swine. Uh, someone look at it. Do a, uh, do a Google. Do you remember how that goes? Don't, yeah. Don't cast your pearls before swine. And it's something about dogs. I always forget the dogs. We all remember the pearls before swine part. But it's the dog part that I never remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Say it. Okay. Okay. So, like, unless you think that Dogs are going to trample underfoot, and then pigs are going to turn and devour you. Like, he's speaking in that chiasm, which is something they employed. So, dog, he says something about dogs, and says something about pigs, and says something about pigs, and says something about dogs again. Something like that. So, that's like, a, like an idea of a chiasm. Um, and so, what, what the Bible, like, what the narratives would tend to do is that there'll be like this something will happen, and something else will happen, and then you get the recaps. Okay. And so, the thing I think, like, this chiasm structure is actually. Um, it's really helpful because remember, most people would not have read the Bible; they'd hear the Bible. And so, like, so one of the things that the chiasm does is like re- is, is recapping a lot. Like, okay, so remember how this ties with this, and remember how this ties with this. Like, and at the end, let me remind you of the beginning. So it's like it's supposed to be a memory device. And so, like, so this chiastic structure is kind of what makes the Bible feel repetitive. Like, didn't I just read this? Like, why are you going on and on? Yeah, it's like because they're just doing like these, like tying things back together to make sure you understood how these things were all connected. So, um, if you're just reading, like, so sometimes I feel like I fall victim to my own Bible reading plan, where I'm like, read one and a half chapters, stop. And then go read some other stuff, and then go read some other stuff, and go to the next day. Okay, now read a little bit more, stop. And, read, and what you start losing is, like, that big picture, so you wouldn't see, like, these things. Um, one of them here is, like, I call it A plus A minus for lack of a different thing to say, but this is contrast. So there's times, so, like, the Bible, like, employs, like, irony, and like, and like, we'll never. It doesn't say so because it's assumed that you'd understand that they're being ironic here. So, or, or they're putting two things side by side, not contrasting them, not saying outright. Okay, so now, reader, we're going to contrast these two events. They just do it, right? So, for example, in um, Joseph, when Joseph's getting sold into slavery, um, 
So you have this whole Joseph story going on, and right smack in the middle is a complete interruption. Um, so as after, like, Joseph was talking, like, the whole, like, Potiphar's wife thing, and he's about to get thrown in prison. So, like, that whole happens, also, like, stops everything. And then it comes in Genesis 38, which is talking about Judah and Tamar, right, his daughter-in-law and, like, that whole business. And then resumes the Joseph story in 39. So it's, like, this complete interruption. Now, if you're, like, reading, like, one chapter at a time, you may not pick this up, but if you look, like, Joseph, 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 Judah, what? Joseph, like, like to the point that, like, some scholars said, this was added later, because why would the writer interrupt his own story? It's like, dude, chill out. It's irony. It's like contrast, okay? Here you've got Joseph, who's, like, doing it right, and you got Judah, who's not doing it right. And they're, and they're side by side. And then, not only that, but there's, like, a, a time, there seems to be, like, a chrono- chronology break, because they're talking about, like, Judah, he's not even with his family, and the, like, stuff they're not stating, but, like, stuff that would be very important to them. So, like, after, like, you know, all the brothers going around with their... And then all of a sudden, in Jude, like, 38, like, what the heck has happened? Like, Judah is, like, a long ways away from home. He's with, like, all these people that are not his people. And he's, like, involved in all this fertility cult stuff. Like, Judah, what is up with you? And then, and then he ends it with, like, apparently Tamar is more righteous than I am. In the story, moving on, Joseph, and you're like, what's that about? But then, but then you realize, like, in the, the whole thing, like, the contrast is made because here's Joseph who's doing it right, here's Judah who's doing it wrong, but who gets to carry, the, like, the name, the lineage? It's Judah. Yeah. So just not to forget, like, it's just so, like, mind blowing. <laughs> like, so just to make sure that you see that weird contrast, and then, like, and the next time you see Judah, he's back with his family, and he's like leading his family. He's like, he, and, and Judah, who like was so mad at Tamar, he wanted her killed for sleeping around Judah, like hypocrite. Like he's the one who's like, who's like the humble one of the brothers. Like he had learned his lesson. So these are things like the Bible's not like straight up telling you like, do note the character development of Judah right now. It just doesn't. And so you only see that kind of through these contrasts and literary structures. So... So I say here, it's often important to look at the overarching structure of the book or a section that you're reading. Otherwise, you could miss comparisons that are intentionally being made. So, and this, again, being the downside of a reading plan. Okay. Oh, man. Small break. We'll get through it. Uh, About four minutes or so. All right, page three, wisdom. All right, so um, if, if you look at uh, Japanese poetry, or Japanese, well, poetry and art, it's like, it's all subtle and understated. So like, you, there's like pictures where all you see is a branch of a tree. That's it. Like in a bunch of white, like the branch of a tree in lots of white space. And like the whole, and so you're supposed to be thinking about the tree through, like, the one branch. So it's, like, it's, like, subtle and understated. And you're, yeah, so it's, like, and then, like, um, the, uh, it's not Sudoku. Why am I trying to say Sudoku? What's the poetry? Um, taiku. Like, haiku. Like, the whole point is, like, this really, like, pithy, crafted, small, like, not this huge prose. Like, can you just boil this down to, like, a small statement? And so, like, that's their cultural aesthetic. So, so when you start getting stuff like wisdom literature and poetry, you start kind of picking up on, like, what's the cultural aesthetic? Like, what do they appreciate as a, um, 
as a culture. So um, I'll pick it up with wisdom. So one of the things that they do a lot is they like to teach things by placing two things side by side. And then, so you see the two and you start making comparisons. And I realized, like, that's a great learning. I've started doing that with, stu- like, with my students. I'm like, oh, yeah, just place two things side by side. Don't tell them anything about it. Just say, okay, like, start comparing them. Different? Similar? You tell me. So, like, so that is what um, is referred to as parallelism. And, he, like, when you read, like, the Proverbs, they're usually in couplets, and they're just put, contrasting or showing the similarities between two things. So... So the first thing that they'd like to do is like side by side comparisons. So and you and actually once you start seeing it, you see it in more than just Proverbs. You start seeing it like in Genesis thirty seven and Genesis thirty eight, side by side comparisons, Joseph versus Judah. You start seeing these things and like um even in the prophets, you'll like they'll put things side by side all the time. You're like, Oh, look what they're doing. The other thing they like to do in, in the Proverbs and poetry especially is then try to make it as pithy as possible. Like can you how can you say this as directly as you can? As opposed to like this big old like high fluting statement, right? So I always thought like BJ would make a great Hebrew because he writes very pithy everything. So like boils it down to like just enough of what you need to know. It's like that's like it's and it's aesthetic, right? So Cormac McCarthy and all that good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so um, someone has this definition of a Proverbs. So Proverbs are intentionally pithy and salty. So, quote, short sentences that draw from long experience. Um, Timothy Keller calls them the hard candy of the Bible. Like, if you're just, like, blitzing through the Proverbs, you're missing the point. Like, you're supposed to, like, think about it and, like, just kind of chew on it and really, like, is, like, pondering is implied here. That's why it's, like, it's a condensed, like, small something. But you're supposed to chew on these things. So, like, I realize that. And you start, like, just, like, da 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 When you're reading through your Proverbs, right? Like, ching I'm a wise man, right? Like, <laughs> No, young young fool, you're supposed to think about this. <laughs> so, yeah, and so and there's a lot of uh, what I call, call here word craft in the proverbs. So, um, first of all, so there's like word order. So they would say, and we do this actually in our culture. It's like, he who gathers in summer is a prudent son. Okay, it's almost like you're talking like Yoda a little bit, like prudent son is he, right? So, but like. It's like, wait, 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 isn't the correct way to say it? A prudent son gathers in summer. Like, that's, you know, like, start with the prudent son. So they'll, they'll, they'll essentially, like, flip words to, like, make you slow down and think about it. Phonetic repetition, which is in, pretty much impossible to say. Like, give you a Hebrew comparison. Mainly because I don't read Hebrew that well, like, if at all, right? With a dictionary and a lot of time. So, for example, many men, many minds, right? There's kind of that, that ba-da-da, ba-da-da, and it works out. Got some mnemonics in there. Like, ah, so that'll stick with me. Um, Word balance. So they'll do stuff like, a wise man makes glad a father, but a foolish son is sorrow to his mother. Um, And so they're just kind of, they're balancing out words of father and mother. It's not like, so I think the point would be, the wise son makes glad the father and mother, and the foolish son is a sorrow to his father and mother. But just for like the pithiness of it all, they kind of like, they make sure the father and mother both get kind of a statement in there. So like, so you would pick up on that, that they mean that. Rhetorical enhancement. Like, this is my favorite one in Proverbs 30. Three things are too wonderful for me, four I cannot understand. The way of the eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on the rock, the way of the ship upon a sea, and the way of a man with a woman. Which is always kind of hard thing to translate. Because, like, some say, way with man with a virgin. But really what they're trying to say, when boy meets girl. 
Like, can you figure out where an eagle's going? Can you figure out how serpents slide on the rock? Can you figure out how a ship trans, like, goes across the sea? Then neither can you figure out <laughs> when boy meets girl and what's gonna go on, right? So, and so, like, that enhancement, they kind of build, 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 pow, build, build, build. And, and then this is, like, in a sequence of a bunch of them. Like, he, he uses, like, three things, but four things, and there's, like, a whole sequence of them. So he just keeps building on that idea. In the parallelism, putting things side by side, there's basically four ways they put them side by side. So, synonymous, so this enhances that. So, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Like, they're talking about the same thing, they're just looking at it from different perspectives, so they, they build, and it's synonym, same thing. Versus antithetical, which would be like, so like, things being the same, things are different. So you say, hate stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. So there's that contrast. So like, what's hate? What's all the things involved? What do you know about hate? Okay. And it stirs up strife versus love. And what's love? Like, what's love and what's the characteristics of love? But notice that love covers all offenses. Okay, so those are like the big two emblematic means. Like, so you're trying to boil it down to like a pithy statement, then maybe just use a word picture. Like, clouds and wind without rain is one who boasts of a gift never given. So using like clouds and rain, which for us, like, rain, we don't care. Like, yeah, rain, right? right. But like, if you're depending on a crop or your well filling up so you don't have to move, like, you really want that cloud to have rain in it, right? So, like, that, like, kicks a punch in your gut. And then what's called a synthetic couplet. Um, the lazy person does not plow in season. And then the next line, harvest comes, and there's nothing to be found. So basically, this is our fancy word. So when a, when a couplet doesn't work out very well, like when they kind of break the rules, like you know, the postmodern proverb, right? It's like, break the rules now. And so that's what the synthetic is like. They don't always follow this verbatim. And so there's examples of that. Okay. Now, the proverbs tend to have, like, very because sh- everything's short, pithy, and in pairs often. So you, you get, like, these things. But it's not to say that, so the other two books of wisdom is Job and Ecclesiastes. And they do, they'll do this. They'll show contrast this versus that. But, um, but they also do this in, like, what I call the macro level. Because you got Job being what? Contrasted with his friends. So you kind of got this contrast. And then, but then you, then you show, like, Job starting to, like, Kind of crumble a little bit, and then God shows up on the scene. So there's like there's all these like all these developments. Um, I think like the more you start understanding like the way that they really treasure these structures, you're like, oh man, Job is like a really neat book to them, right? It's like it's the best example of this, or Ecclesiastes is a really good example of that. So, um, and then the other thing is that the so the, the, that's just kind of like the genre structures to things to be looking out for but then there's um the message that all three books of so there's a, I think there's a reason why there's three wisdom books like it's not all just proverbs and it's not simply ecclesiastes not just job like all three wisdom books are in there because each of them serve their unique purpose so proverbs speaks to like the 99% of your life like like, if you don't cheat people, people don't cheat you, okay? Like, like the stuff that you, like, just live, like, kind of like the adages you live by. Do this, and this is going to happen. And so, but then if you read the book of Proverbs, you think, oh, perfect. So if I follow all these things exactly, then the life, my life will look like this. Well, generally true. But that's not, that doesn't explain all of life. So then you, so you got the Proverbs say, okay, these are laws to live by. So in the Proverbs really looks at, like, God has set a moral order to this universe, and it's best that you follow it, because... Generally, good things happen. But then Ecclesiastics is, is the skeptic who realizes that, like, 
well, you know, you could do everything right, but still, like, end up poor. You can do everything right and die early. Like, stuff like that happens, right? So, like, Ecclesiastes is kind of like, like, you know, the snarky skeptic a little bit. But, like, he's got a, he's like, he kind of has a point, right? You kind of see it, like, yeah, yeah, that's true. But the Ecclesiastes wraps up by saying, so, like, okay, so what's the end of the matter? So, know your God. Follow him. Because, you know, if things go well for you, things do not. If you know God, then you have exactly what's important. So in your strength, in your youth, focus on knowing God. So there are inequalities and there's futility. So Ecclesiastes is almost like saying there's inequalities and futility that exist because you live in a sinful universe. So Proverbs, if, like if we didn't live with, with corruption in our hearts, and if we didn't live in a cursed universe, then Proverbs should work out perfectly. But... Sin's in the picture, and so things don't go always according to plan. So I think Ecclesiastes is picking up on that. And then Job is dealing with the side. Job is so complicated. Um, but if you think about, it's like it's the 1% of life. Because here is, because the whole conversation with Job is like, if ever there's a man who followed the Proverbs, it was Job. Like he did everything right, yet tragedy came upon him. And so even to the point where his friend said, yeah, 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 yeah. You say you did everything right, but tragedy came upon you. So, uh, if A implies B, then it's because, like, according to the Proverbs, you were really doing all this bad stuff over here, and we just don't know about it, but that's the only reason this bad stuff would have come upon you. But Job gives us the one time that you actually get to pull back the curtain and see, like, you know, there might be a third explanation. There might be something completely outside of what you thought was happening. You thought it was like, he's good and good happened, he's bad and bad happened, and God is showing us, well, no, actually. Like, there could be another explanation. Such as, I am showing you Job, my servant, who is righteous. And, then, and he's getting goaded, like, in a sense, and he's proving to Satan that, like, at the end of the day, like, come hardship or tragedy, God is still worth worshiping. And Job recognizes that at the end. But, and then so the front end, and then on the back end, like, God gives what seems to be the most unsatisfying answer to the problem of suffering ever. <laughs> Like, he says, like, so you say, like, so Job's basically saying, you know, God, come give an explanation. And, and God, rather than coming in, says, like, well, okay, well, let me explain. So I was in heaven, and this guy, I was like, no, instead he says, like, look, like, I hold the entire universe together. I know, like, there are things that I know about, the birth, like, where the goat gives birth, like, where the Leviathan sleeps, I, and I control these things, and I, I can, like, like, these things are totally within my power. In fact, they're almost like they're little things to me. So, like, knowing that I have this much control and this much power, and, like, can you trust me to know, like, there's a reason for this, right? And so, and, like, and it leaves there, and, then, and Joe's response, which, like, because then you're like, it seems like at first, like, God's giving the most unsatisfying answer, but then, like, that does it. Like, that satisfies Job's soul. And, like, so, so like, the conversational wisdom says... So what's the, end of, like, what's the end of the matter? Like, know God. Trust God. Like, he'll take care of you. And so, like, so, like, here you have, like, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job, and you have to think of all three of those as being all set together, telling you a story in, like, in, a, in cohesion, which, like, that if you just studied Proverbs but never pondered the other two, you'd kind of miss the full picture that the Bible would have. You'd know about wisdom and life in this world. So, okay, so... That's wisdom. Law. Okay. Which, um, 
there's like so much here in law. Like there's so much in all of this, of course. But like there's so much in law, um, specific, especially because um, Old Testament law tends to rankle our 21st century sensibilities. Um, so I think, um, I think I think we are offended at the law more than maybe other cultures have been. But there, there are some things that we need to understand. Um, and we need to understand these things as well when we start understanding um, what the prophets are doing. So the first thing with the law is that if the whole point of God giving law is it flows out of a relationship with him. Okay, because, okay, what's the law? Like, if they said, if someone said, I've read the law, what books of the Bible are they talking about? Like, Genesis, Exodus, the biggest numbers, Deuteronomy? Okay, but then if you think about what part of the law is law, it's like, it's the back end of Exodus, through Leviticus, and that's pretty much it. There's some restating of the law in Deuteronomy. So, of the law, like, there's a, there's a whole lot of that that's not actually God-giving law. And, and that's intentional because like, the first thing you have to know before you can start understanding like, why God was setting up the structure of law was in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was good. And then man sinned. But God loved. He didn't destroy. And, like, and then God promised to save the world through the family of Abraham. And then God delivered his people out of the bondage of Egypt. So like, you have to remember all these things that God showed his goodness to humanity over and over and over again. Like God want a relationship with his people. Okay. But then you've got a problem because we're sinful and he's holy. And so as much like as, as if God would desire you to have close, but then like that would just fry you in an instant. Like you cannot come before God in your sinful state. So God has to do something about that. Okay. And so if you re- like, so you have like an exodus, um, God's like, okay, here's the tabernacle, here's all these things, here's the law, here's how you behave towards one another. And then Exodus ends with, and Moses is about to enter into the tent. And then you hit Leviticus, and like, in three chapters, the whole thing has just gone, like, just like chaos. Right? Because like, Aaron's sons get drunk, probably. It's like, the implication. They get drunk, and they do strange fire, and they alter, and God like, destroys them, but then like, this is like this whole like, mess. And like, and then people want to run in and get the sons out, and Moses is saying, "What are you doing? You cannot leave lest you get destroyed." And so they they sit there like, and it's like this, like so day one, chaos, <laughs> like everything's falling apart. People are being sinful, not obeying God. And so then God says, "Okay, here's more law. You need this. You need forgiveness of sin. You need all these things to come into place." So, um, covenant relationship is where all flows out of. So, when God says, like, behave this way towards... Like, God takes his relationship with us very seriously. In return, we take our relationship to him very seriously. And, ultimately, when you... Because, remember, like, David kills... Like, Susan Bathsheba kills her husband. And then, at the end of the day, like, he says, like, against you, you only have I sinned. You're like, Really? Against you and you only, oh God, how I send. Like, what about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? Okay, no, that's understood. But what he was doing, like, his affront, like, his complete disregard for the law was ultimately, at the end of the day, a, an affront to the covenant relationship that God had established with them. So to, to, to break the law is, the, is a sense is to, like, to, like, say that the relationship that I have with you, oh God, is little to me, and I would prefer these things over here. So... 
um, built into these covenants. So, like, covenant relationship. And, like, I feel like I'm, like, I get it and I don't. It's, like, it's a very slippery thing to me. Um, I feel like, because there's, like, the covenant, like, covenant is, like, marriage, right? We say that, like, it's, like, a marriage contract. And so, like, um, when I put on this ring, I made a promise to my wife that I was going to uh, behave by a certain moral ethical code, right? That I'm not going to sleep with other people. Like, because, like, I restrict my behavior and I'm going to act in a way appropriate to it. So, in a sense, like, there's, like, the covenant, the relationship is what drives it, not the ring, right? It's my love for my wife that does that, not, like, societal um, norms, right? Um, because I will love her, I want her to flourish. So, and there's a sense in which God's, like, covenant love, which, by the way, so, God's covenant love, the love that flows out of covenant is loving kindness, probably in your Bible. His loving kindness endures forever. That's a word for love. That's like When God says that, he's talking about covenant love. I love you because I love you. Okay, so, and I kind of think like the idea of covenant that God's making with people in these laws, like there's a sense that I mean the marriage captures it, but in another sense it really doesn't capture the full picture. Because I think like mix in with that as well the way you love your child. Right? Because like, like, I love my child, like, the way, like, like, kind of unconditionally, right? I'm, like, even when they're being little wretched sinners and, like, pushing at each other and, like, biting each other and stuff like that. And, like, ah, But at the end of the day, I love them, right? And I'm, I'm going to seek their good above all things, right? So there's, like, so there's both elements. There's that relational aspect of, like, the husband and wife. That's one way to capture it. Like, the, the child to a parent relationship, I think, is another way that you can capture it. It's, like, it's kind of incorporating all those things. Okay. So I... Th- like, to understand that, that God means relationship as the reason for giving law um, is important. Now, the other thing to remember when you're talking about the Old Testament law, so um, the law passes away, right? Um, Jesus starts giving us some insight into, like, why the law was insufficient because he says, Moses let you divorce because he knew the hardness in your heart. So, so he knew, like, that you were going to do this and so what God put in place was structures to protect the innocent, right? Because in other cultures, you can, like, you could just throw a wife away, like, nobody's business, and there's no recourse or no... And, like, in the law, like, God makes sure that those people are protected as well. And so it's like God, knowing that you're going to cast away your wife, protects the innocent and protects those who, who would otherwise be taken advantage of by society. Um, the, the sojourners in your land... Like, the immigrants who came and just squatted on your land is not leaving. Like, it's really easy to get really mad at them and want to kick them out, and God says, no, feed them, right? And then, like, the, the poor and the orphan, like, the people who cannot, like, like, the law is being fulfilled when you're behaving towards these people in a way that, that, like, that treasures them, that protects them, that loves them like yourself, loving your neighbor like yourself. And so even though some of the laws seem like really, really harsh to us, and you're like, oh my gosh, what are you doing? Like, you gotta understand. Like, so for example, there's like stuff where, like, um, if you think your wife has committed adultery, then you're going to come and get like this test where like some like drink this water, and you're sitting there going like, "Oh my gosh, oh my gosh!" Like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, God, what is this all about? But then what you're recognizing is is that unlike all the other societies around them, the wife is not guilty until proven innocent. She's innocent until proven guilty. Like that's the difference. Like God is going to like you can't just say I think my wife had it. I'm going to divorce her. Or she needs to be killed. Like God's like, no, no, we'll prove that. And I'll be involved in that, by the way. I'm not just going to let your little heart tell you whether or not you was, did it. So um, there's all these things. So like the, so the, the, the laws boil down to love. Now, 
we know that the law passes away because it's insufficient. Like our hearts, like it's all like these things are in place because of hardness of heart. It does not mean that the morals that God set forward in His law are bad morals. Like the morals are still good. You protect. Like, so, like if you boil down to principles and stuff, well, it's love God. So, if you don't have idolatry in your heart, first of all, then you can start behaving towards people in the right way. So, love God and then love your neighbor as yourself. And then, and then you could do sub adages like, if God gives you powers to, you use your power to protect people, not exploit them. And to use your advantages not to take advantage of other people, but to help them flourish. Which is why in the prophets, when they said, you've done it all wrong, it's like, you've used your power to get richer. You've made the poor poor. Like, I'm hearing the cries of orphans who are starving to death. Like, you have, like, you obviously have the wrong understanding, the, the wrong heart. So that when, so when the law passes away, it's not because those things were bad enough of themselves. It's just like it was insufficient just to tell you what to do. So God comes in and says, okay, I'm going to make a new covenant with you. I'm going to change your heart. I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. So then you'll love and obey my commandments. So God gives us spirit over time. Fruit grows. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, what? There is no such law. Because in a world where no one acts like a jerk on the road, and no one goes faster than what's safe. And like, you don't need signs. And you don't need like all these things. You don't need a whole bunch of laws. You don't need tickets because everybody's acting lovingly towards them. So when people, like, when God's love permeates and God's character permeates your life, then you don't need law anymore. Okay. So there are categories of law. Now we like, we're Westerners, we like to break things up into categories. It's, they probably say like, they probably not break these into subcategories the way we do, but okay, here they are. Because they don't say like, Okay, and now we'll begin the apodotic text, and now we'll do the cultic text, and now we'll, they don't do that. It's just like these are all intermixed with each other. But um, God gives statements of society norms. So He says, "Okay, here's what you can live by." And so then He makes these absolute statements like, "Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't do this, don't do that, don't have adultery." Don't so all these do don'ts. So that's one type of thing. And then there's also the case law. If then. It's like, okay, so let's work some of this out. So if this happens, then do this. And if this happens, then do this. And so what he's doing is he's, he's starting to show us, like, okay, now case by case, like, how are you going to deal with this? And this is probably what guided the judges, right? So there's judges that would do courts. Like, okay, so he's given this example of what to do. Um, and, like, I have those adages on it. Love God, love neighbor. It's the ideal of the law. And power is meant to be used to serve others, not use them. So stuff like that is guiding a lot of the case law. And there's this whole other cultic law, um, so the things that make you clean versus unclean, um, most of them, like, so Hebrews tells us, like, did killing a goat and putting your hands on the other goat take away sin from you? Nope. Jesus does that. All these things act to point you to the fact of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The priesthood was to point you to the better priest. The sacrifice was to point you to the better sacrifice. All these things were meant to point you to Jesus Christ. So at the end of the day, because Jesus Christ is actually going to be the one that does this for you. So almost all of what you're seeing in the, the cultic law is they're just parables, living parables, day in and day out, of forgiveness of sin, of God's redemption, of how to express thankfulness towards God. Okay, so a lot of it we can figure out. Some of it is still baffled. Like, I don't know what this like. Blood on the ear, blood on the toe, blood on the finger. Like, I'm not sure how. Yeah. But did the people of that time see that as, you know, of course not looking for <laughs> this, but Right. the average person, 
Yeah. I think the Psalms kind of help us, right? Because two things, first of all. In the Psalms, you start seeing, like, like, David could say, I don't think he's inventing this, I think he just knew this, like, like the blood of bulls and goats you have not desired, but a contrite heart. Like, you want repentance, that's what you're going for. So I think in some ways, like, they understood the picture. Um, the other thing is to say that um, God says not all Israel is Israel. Like, so I think there were people sacrificing goats on a yearly basis, but with like no love for God in their heart, no repentance in their hearts. Like, I don't think those things ended up themselves saved. Like, what saves in the Bible the whole time, what saves is faith that God is going to provide the means by which you'll be, your sins will be removed from you. And what's interesting, like, almost all the words that we use, they're big, highfalutin words that mean nothing to us in English, uh, except for like the, cu- the cultural context that we put around them. Iniquity. Transgression, sin, all these things, like to us, are like, okay, um, sure. <laughs> like, they are because of what they are. But in, in Hebrew, like, they're word pictures, all of them. So, like, transgression is to cross over a line. So, like, God says, here's a line, and you, and you step over it, like, that's called a transgression. Because you also say, like, when someone crossed a river, that's a transgression. Just not a bad way, right? Because you cross a river. Sin would be like, it's, it's missing the mark. So it's a picture of, like, in, like a word picture, they say, like, there's, in Judges, there's a Benjamite, so you can swing with the left hand and the right, both of them, that's crazy, and they, and they throw and they never miss, throw and they would never sin, they'd never be off mark. So, like, transgression says, God, I know your law and I just don't obey it. Sin says, like, you're trying really hard, but you're just, like, as it were, like, aiming at the wrong goal. So when it says, like, for all of sin, fall short of the glory of God, and actually literally is more like all of us are sinning continually and falling short of the glory of God, which means like your aim at life is like on the completely wrong target. So transgression is what we think of. When we think, when you think the word sin, I sinned, like you think transgression, usually. And where sin is like, like you've just oriented your life after the wrong thing and you're just heading in that direction the whole time, right? And so, and then iniquity is this idea of, like, bearing guilt. So, like, iniquity is like a weight that's upon you. So when, like, there's sin upon you, it's like, because um, God says, you'll bear your iniquity. You'll bear your iniquity. You'll bear, like, literally, like, on you bear your iniquity. So then forgiveness means to lift off. So you take the iniquity off of someone. And then the weight has to go somewhere. Like, because like, justice requires that the iniquity is addressed. So, like, so that's why you literally, so forgiveness would be to lift off and then you would put it where? You put it on the goat. You put it on the sacrifice that dies. You put it on the thing that goes in the wilderness. Right? Because like, that's the point. Is that we don't bear our iniquity. So. They're good pictures. So whether or not they saw it for all its clarity, probably not. But when they can look back and see Jesus Christ, you, that, that is why Paul's excited. Like he gets it. He sees it for its fullness for the first time. And so, good. All right, so, poetry. Okay. So here they are. So if you go to the Psalms, they have all these listings of like, sometimes they don't give it a, a title at all. It's like, Psalm 1, just go, right? No, like, fine text above it. But um, 57 of the Psalms are called Psalms. And Psalms means uh, melody. So, indicates that there's music that went along with it. Like, where it goes from there, don't know. Just, it had to do, Psalms, like, had to do with 
corporate worship. Like no psalm, in a sense, was meant for like one person. It was meant for a congregation to hear or sing together. So like it's it's like it's a it's a very um, communal experience. Much like like you can sing by yourself, that's cool. But then there's also times like we sing with together, and that's better. Like when we sing at church every time, right? We, we worship practice on Thursday. It's kind of boring. When the church comes together, then it's a lot more exciting because because people are all reflecting on God together, and it's much much neater. Um, um, so the Psalms, just in and of themselves, it's mel- melodies, so there's music associated. There's something called the Psalm of Praise. There's only two in the Bible, Psalms 1 of six and 1 in Second Chronicles. So a melody, and they're just saying specifically a praise. And the Psalms were fixed, for 146 is like, for his love endures forever, for his love endures forever, for his love. Praise chorus. Repeat over and over. Sorry. It's a bad joke. Um, verses, okay, so like Psalm, Song, and then Song. So 31 of these things are labeled Song. Now, what's the diff- where does the Psalm end and the Song begin? Okay, we weren't there. <laughs> like, maybe the psalm is something you listen to, but a song is something you sing as a congregation. I don't know. And some of them are, refer- like, there's a few psalms that actually get both, they're called both a song and a psalm. Adding to the confusion about one and the other starts. Like, okay. So, admits, so um, and song is psalm and it's a song. Because it's referred to as a song. Okay. Um, now, there's uh, masculine. So the reason why, so when you read it, it's like a masculine of David. Now the reason why they say masculine, I'm not translating it. So there is a transliteration of the Hebrew word. Whenever they do that, it's because they don't know. Like that's kind of what they, when they don't translate a word over and they just make the sounds like, it's because they're not sure what that means. Okay, so masculine is one of them. There is a suggestion that it is. They're like psalms that also are wisdom literature in a sense. So there's the Psalms 36 or something like that. Um, Blessed is the man who the Lord does not count his transgression and his iniquity. And, and so like, it starts off like, you know, how blessed I am that God forgave me. And don't be the stupid mule like me who got to get dragged by his nose to repentance. Like, just repent. Just don't let God drag you. Like, like you're, you're going to repent in two ways. Either God's going to drag you, kicking or screaming, or you're just going to repent right now and make it easy, okay? So, like, so, like, there's a sense, like, in which the psalm is also, like, it's a song, but it's portraying, like, wisdom to you. Like, here's the way to behave. Most of them be- function that way, but not all of them. So, that's why we're not entirely sure. There's not a close set. There's four that are called prayers. So, I think it's self-explanatory. Amiktam, which, again, means that we don't know. Um, but all of them, so there's like Psalm 16, and then the Miktoms, like 56, 57, 58, 59, and 60. They're all grouped together. And they all have something in common, in the sense, at least the ones in the 50s, up to 60, is that these were all associated with David was fleeing from someone as a hard time in his journey. So maybe a Miktom is like the sound you make when your voice is in the cave, because that's where David spent a lot of time. <laughs> I don't know. A Shigion. Okay, so at least we know what actually, so these other words like, um, masculine and miktam, we don't even know what they mean in other contexts. Like, they, they only show up here. Versus, like, shigion actually gets um, used in other verses. And so it means to reel or go astray. Not sure that really helps. <laughs> is it a jig? I don't know. Like, is it a really super, like, exciting song? Like, yeah, I like this one. Like, don't know. Um, so, and there's one in Habakkuk, chapter 3. Song of Ascent would be, okay, so you, the Song of Sense, because, uh, do you notice that it always says you go up to Jerusalem? You go up to Jerusalem? 
And we think, you go north to Jerusalem? Like, no, no. You go up a really steep ravine to Jerusalem. And so, like, like if you've ever gone backpacking, switchbacks are the worst. Like, soul-crushing. You're going up. It's like you're making no progress. Like, can't you go straight up? Like, no, you're doing all these switchbacks. And, like, so as, as it were, like, these, these songs are meant to keep your mind focused on you're going to the temple to worship God. Remember, you're going to the worship. You know, like, be excited. You're going to the temple to worship. So that question, you're just scratching your eyebrow. Eyebrow? Eyebrow. Okay. So the Song of the Sins are like songs that you would sing as you ascended to Israel, which I also thought, like, that should be a great way to go to church instead of, like, fighting with your kids and get in the car, like, just trying to praise music and, like, focus on the fact that you're going to worship God. So, okay. Um, so now, do Psalms, so the, one of my big questions going into seminary, like, of the, like, top ten was, do the Psalms rhyme? Like, I just, like, I have to know. And the answer is generally not. <laughs> Like, what? How is it a psalm? How is it a poem and it doesn't rhyme? Okay, so, they do slant rhymes a lot and play on words. They, they use word pictures. And so they do slant rhymes. Like, a slant rhyme is like, doesn't directly rhyme, but kind of does. Like, orange and door hinge. Like, kind of, but not really. Yeah, they do that. Um, but they, they use parallelism and put ideas side by side. And um, because a lot of their language is Word pictures, they like to, they they're really building on word pictures a lot, um, and so that's there. Some of that doesn't always come across very well for us, but you know, too bad. The core of what's being the, the core of the message is clear in the Psalms. Um, then also like the sparsity, like they try to make things pithier, not longer, um, and the, so. One of the things I've always wondered is, like, you read, and sometimes narrative, like, the, in your Bible, it's, like, justified block. Like, I'm talking about text. Sorry. And sometimes it's, like, centered, right? You know what I'm talking about? When I, like, spread out versus, like, I'm, like, how do they know? Like, how do you know it's a poem? Especially if they don't rhyme. <laughs> like, if they don't rhyme, how do you know? Okay, because, like, um, it, so there are, like, very clear indicators that you're doing poetry, not narrative. One of them is, like, they, they use their word for and, and then, like, that word. It's actually a letter, and they use it all the time, all the time. Like, it's actually the easiest thing to translate. Like, first it scares you, and they're like, oh, this is easy. Like, and then, and then, and then. Um, and so, we're, usually it's like, if you see the and then tying together, the whole, like, that's a narrative. And when that's gone, when all the, so when that's gone, and when there's, like, other, like, they're, when they're pulling words out that kind of make things clear, and a story, like when those things get removed, then you're like, ah, oh, we're in poetry. Which, notably, actually, there's a lot of conversation about whether or not Genesis 1 is a poem or a narrative. And so, one of the key, like I said, one of the key indicators is like, does it have that and then, and then? And indeed it does. It's there. So, not, I, I, I go for not song. It's a narrative. So, um, acrostic, so just know, I guess acrostic, know they exist. You know what I mean by acrostic? Like A, 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 B, 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 C, C, C. So the first letter of the, of the line starts with a letter in the alphabet. So in Adam's fall, we send all, and I don't know the one they used to do for primers for Puritan kids in America, but like you try to like, so like the, the Psalms 119, like they have the whole Aleph, that Gimel, like, so in the Aleph, like all the lines start with Aleph, which is actually a silent letter. 
but okay. So that one was easy. And then um, there's like all the ones start with B. And there are other places like the Proverbs 31, the Proverbs 31 woman um, uses an acrostic. Um, so there's like, yeah, I, I list out the forms. So you can, you can do it chiastically, A, B, C, B, A. You could do that. Um, but the big one is like probably, so if you say acrostic, I think most people would know just because Psalms 119 has the letters embedded. But the kind of like the, the acrostic poem par excellence is Lamentations. The whole thing, chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, are all written in an acrostic. And like, there's like, this is just like all the symmetry built into, like whoever wrote Lamentations spent a ton of time working on it. And like, they, want, they just don't want to express their grief in like a like spontaneous way. They want to express their grief in a very thoughtful, poetic, capturing the heart of grief. Best they can way, and so I show you on the bottom there. Like I show you, like the acrostic it uses. So chapter one goes A, B, C, and do their alphabet. Chapter two the same thing. Chapter three kicks up in the high gear and does like Aleph three times, Bet three times, Gamble three times, and then it go and then like almost chiastically it backs off again. So it builds it and then pulls back. And chapter three is like if you know anything about Lamentations, you know Lamentations three probably, and you may not. Like the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases; His mercy never comes to an end. Chapter three, okay, yeah. Everything else, you're like, what's in there? Like, I don't know. But like that's. But chapter three is kind of like the highlight of the intensity and the grasping at hope happens right there at the most intense acrostic moment. So not, like, so not only is it like thematically important, but like he's also showing how important it is through like the the high gear structure he's using. And then, and then when he backs down, weird. This is one that always baffled him. He completely drops. I say he because it's Jeremiah. They're pretty sure. Um, chapter five, the acrostic is just dropped completely. Stops using it. And you're like, what? <laughs> what? Why would you do that? So, okay. Ten minutes prophecy. <laughs> no. Okay. Um, so, if I were to tell you, like, so when you think a prophet, like prophecy, you probably think someone who tells the future. Um. Or like culturally, you think someone tells the future. When in fact, most of the time, the prophets did not tell the future. Some of them didn't at all tell the future. Um, we're assuming that would be like Elijah and Elisha, who didn't even seem to have oracles. They just were like doing miracles all the time and then saying, like, you're a bad king. Like, that, stuff like that. Like, so he's not telling you what the future holds. He's just like, you're just a bad king. I'm just going to let you know that. Okay, so, because you have to understand what the prophets are doing. So, like, you cannot forget that God is in a covenant relationship with his people. I forgot to mention this, but... So, attached to the covenant was like, okay, if you obey a covenant, you get blessings. And if you break the covenant, you get curses. There's like this kind of situation. And the prophets... Like, if you cannot understand the prophets unless you really understand what the, the law and the covenant of the law... So, like, the first five books, what they're establishing. Um, because what they're doing is they're looking back and saying, you know, God said you had to behave this way, and you're not. So remember, there are certain judgments that will come upon you for breaking these laws. FYI. And a lot of times, like the, the prophets, so when they're prophesying, like these judgments are coming, they're in line with the judgments that God said would come. And then there's also like, there's like in Leviticus 24, Leviticus 24, there's like an escalation, like we're going to start here, and then we'll go here, we'll go here, we'll go here, until like the fifth step is exile. And a lot of times they're like, did you not notice locusts came and ate your crops? Step one. 
<laughs> like, hello? Like, are you not picking this up? And so, like, so the function of the prophets, first and foremost, is to point people back to, to the fact that they are in covenant with God and they're breaking that covenant. And there's consequences. So, a lot of what the prophets do is looking back at the law. Okay, first of all, then analyzing the present, saying, okay, and you're not following this, and therefore, future, this is the judgments that will come. And, and if the law was all there was, then all they would have to really end with saying is, God's judgment will come, the end. But the prophets, God speaking to the prophets, like, right when you expect to see, like, the end, the people are gone, God starts, like, putting, like, this glimmer of hope, saying, oh, but I'm going to make a new covenant. And so it begins like that, pointing again to Christ. Like, you've broken this completely. You're going to get all the, you're going to get all the curses, FYI, but I will still redeem my people. Like, my promise to Abraham still holds. That's not going to be thwarted by the fact that you guys are adulterous lawbreakers. So, um, so examples of this would be, for example, in Jeremiah 25, Jeremiah said, you're going to be in exile for seven years. Like, okay, seven years. Um, and it's almost like, drink your poison. Like, it's coming, you might as well just go surrender right now. You're going to be in exile for seven years. So, like, where did that number 70 come from? Um, God's like, uh, 70, we'll do it for 70. No, there, there's actually a reason for the 70 years. Now, so Jeremiah says you're going to be in exile for seven years. Like, this king's going to, like, uh, I'll tell you the near future. It's going to look like this, and you're going to exile for seven years. Fast forward 70 years, Daniel goes, hey God, Daniel chapter 9, God, seven years have elapsed. 70, excuse me, 70 years have elapsed. Forgive your people, forgive your people, forgive your people. He prays, like in chapter 9, forgive your people, because he knows that the time of forgiveness is now. Like, you said 70 years, and now 70 years is up, what's going to happen? And, and then, like, you go into, like, crazy Daniel. There's, like, Daniel I understand, and there's Daniel I don't really understand, right? It's like, what? Yeah, but like, the, the transition is right there at chapter 9. It's looking future word to our, towards what happens. Apocalyptic. We'll get that in a second. But again, like, so they recognize, Jeremiah says 70. Uh, Daniel looks backwards and says, okay, seven years elapsed. We're like, where did the number 70 come from? Like, so, in Second Chronicles, we're given a clue. I have it written here in the, the scripture. It's a quote. God, um, oh, Nebuchadnezzar took into exile in Babylon those who escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill what the Lord, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. Until, okay, now, the, like, here's an explanation of what happened. Until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. Huh. All the days that lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. It's like, okay, so where did that come from? Okay, so if you turn, so if you go to, okay, so in Leviticus 26, so I said 24 earlier, I guess I meant 26, 34, that's where I got the number four from. One of the things that God said, okay, so there, like, every seven years, so, like, try this on, okay, you have a job, you have a job for six years, and you take a year off for a seven year, and then you go back to work for the next six years, and then you take the 14th year off, and then you take the next six years, you work, and then the 21st year, you don't work. Okay, so, like, imagine trying to live a whole year on no income, like, and, like, the step of faith that would require. Well, that's exactly the step of faith that God required from his people. It's like, like, you're going to work, 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 but every seventh year, take a break. Or is that for there's something? I have to see this what I get for summarizing. But at some like some interval time, they're supposed to not work, and God was just going to bountifully provide for them. He proved that he could with the manna, right? Like, <laughs> what your crops fail, I can just manna. 
Like, that's not a problem. So, the, so apparently they did not keep those Sabbath years. And God said, the number of times you skip that Sabbath year is going to be one year to your exile. So apparently by the time they got into the point of exile, they had skipped 70 rest years. And that's, and God said, okay. So, according, because it's law, right? It's a covenant. So according to the law, you've skipped 70 of these. Now you're going to have 70 years in exile. So land gets its break, and now you may come back at the end of seven years. So it's like, there's not, so like, so showing that kind of inner section, like this weaving in of like the covenant, the law of the covenant, and the prophets, and how they're working together. In terms of style, almost all of his poems. So I said like the most common form of genre in the Bible is poetry. It's because most of the prophets speak poems to their people. Um, so, and they do all the things where they put things side by side, they speak pithily, they speak in ways that like you could like kind of get like a song that gets stuck in your ear, they try and get like a message stuck in your ear. And um, yeah, and imagery, lots of imagery. Um, and so the idea is like, yeah, lots of, well, I'll point you to a resource in a second. And the other thing that I think we miss a lot, I didn't realize this until I've been doing some studying or learning from people recently, is that even the whole book itself has macro structures that you, like to understand the book, you have to understand how like, like there was judgment and then there was a statement about mercy. And there was judgment, a statement about mercy, and a judgment, and then there's like this great statement about mercy. And like you have to see these as three scenes all together to get the whole picture of what this prophet's talking about. If you just read the judgments, take a break. Read some more judgments, take another break. Then read the mercy and take another break. But you're going to miss that overall. Like, that's part of the picture, part of, like, what's supposed to drive what God is doing home. So, I, I've shown some videos from the Bible Project. So I have, like, either Google, or go to YouTube and put Bible Project, or www.jointhebibleproject.com. Like, they, like, they do a lot of phenomenal things. Like, the thing I've been most blessed by is their prophets. Like, I've, like, never, like, understood the prophets. But now I've, like, they, and these, and the guys who work on it, like, they're, I want to say he has a PhD in, like, this stuff. So it's, like, it's not, like, just, like, you know, Jake and Bob down the road doing this. It's, like, like high, like, these are scholar scholars. So, um, so it's really helpful to understand prophecy in the books. Like, I've been, like, so what I've been doing is I've been watching a video. I was, like, okay. I think I see what you're seeing. And now I'm going to go read, now I go read the prophet. And I go back and like, did I see that? It's like, oh, whoa, that's crazy. Yeah, you start seeing this stuff. So, um, <clears throat> and it, in terms of prophecy, so there's like prophecy, like this is the sense of the people, repent, repent, judgment's coming, judgment's coming. Okay, so now the judgment's coming, you should just give up, right? Uh, surrender to Babylon. So all that's going on. And then there's like these apocalyptic, like the, like the ones that, like the ones that are, like, I think all the other prophecies are easy enough to understand. Like, oh yeah, king coming. Okay, I understand that. And then there's like these like time, time, and half a time, and they go with a horn and the thing, and you're like, what is going on? Like, I don't know what's going on. Okay. But, um, so that's like a sub, sub genre. Um, so, so, oh man, I didn't cite this. This, um, these bullets I stole from somebody. Okay. So what, where apocalyptic is different. The first bullet says, it considers the ever-present wickedness beyond hope. The only solution is total destruction. So sometimes, like, like, humanity is so bad off that God is just going to destroy the world completely and then restart everything anew and fresh. 
It assumes, second of all, that the readers themselves are displeased with the evil around them and are anxious for God to provide a solution. As opposed to the prophets who said, like, like, it's usually like, you're a problem and you won't admit it. This one's like, Apocalypse says, we, can we all agree that there's a problem in this world? Okay, God is going to fix it. And it's going to be comprehensive. It announces that God himself is going to intervene and judge the world through supernatural means. So you get like, you know, even in Revelation, like stars falling from the sky and God showing up in a chariot and like things that you're like, it's going to be really interesting when we get there to know like, how is this all going to play out? Like, who knows? Um, and if, and it, the focus is on the final solution that will last for eternity. So it's like, it's like as if to say, like God has always, like from the beginning, like sin will be dealt with 100%. And if God had did it before Christ, then like the whole world and humanity would be under his judgment. But Christ comes as the savior of the world. And what's been interesting, like one of the things, like if you read like, like Joel, where it talks, where they have like these apocalypse, like there's images associated with it, where like the, the sky is red and all these, like the earth is shaking and all these things. And it's really interesting. And it's, and it's, it doesn't do it all the way, but it does some of it. But at the cross, when it has like all the judgment, like the sky goes dark and the ground shakes and all the, like these are, those were all, like all those things that happened, that was like, Day of the Lord, apocalyptic stuff happening. Okay, and then, and then, as it were, stops. So, like, helping you see that, like, that Christ took the apocalyptic curses that you deserve. Because, okay, now fast forward. There's going to be a, there is going to be the apocalypse, but like Christ already took it for you. That's why you're exempt from that punishment. And like, and now you're part of the people that are saved and redeemed. So, Matthew really does. I can't wait to get there. We have such a long ways to go. Uh, we're only in chapter, we're going to finish, we're finishing chapter 11 next week. So, but yeah, when we get to those, yeah, that's one of the things I want to do is definitely like try to find a lot of those parallels and see how much he employs. Yeah. So, okay. Well, we did it. Maybe we need another week or so. Sure. Um, so. Thoughts for, so we want to resume, we want, we want to take a long break. And after our long break, because babies, uh, BJ and Kate are having a baby. And, and then I get a, a winter break and that's my chance to kind of prep. So, the next thing I think we want to work on, which may change, but, um, so there's, there's two, if you t- talk about disciplines of studying theology, there's two of them. It's kind of like, Sometimes I don't like the names, but okay. One's called systematic theology, where you take a subject and you just say, okay, you know, everything you know about Christ, everything you know about God, everything you know about Trinity. Like when you think theology, you're probably thinking systematic theology. Um, which really, really took off in the 1800s when it's all about like breaking things down into their parts. Um, there's another field, it's called biblical theology, but you'd assume all the Bible is like, yeah, see the name, like it just, I heard that, I'm like, do what? Like, that's theology, right? Okay, so biblical theology says, okay, here are the threads, the progressions as they move through scripture. So, like, temple grows and grows and grows and grows and grows and grows. And so, like, from, like, garden to, like, a little tabernacle to, like, bigger temple to 
Solomon's temple, which is more glorious, and then you got Ezekiel's temple, whatever that ends up being, and then and then you got Herod's false, like kind of fake temple, and then like and then Jesus says, My body is temple, and you're like, Okay, can we just talk about temple? Like and so like trying to show like the story that God's telling in that, like um maybe those are like sub things, but then like what what is the overarching story of the Bible? Like what is God doing? And like how does it all tie together? Like that back and forward looking at the Old and New Testament together to get the full picture of what God's doing in his people. I think that's what we think about, for lack of a better idea. So, if that sounds interesting, if that, that sounds completely boring to you, let us know. Just won't. But meanwhile. So. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then, like, looking at, like, how the progression of prophecies, how you go from, like, Genesis to, uh, Genesis 3 to Genesis 12 to, like, David to New Covenant to like Jesus and trying to tie those things together. It's it's fun. It's actually it's been really uh, neglect. It was like it was a really neglected topic for a long time. It's been like more. There's been a lot more stuff published on it. Like we're in a sense like um, we're in the golden age of this type of conversation. Like no one was doing it, or hardly anybody was doing it. Um, about the 80s, people started going like. You know, I know all these things about Jesus, but so what? Like, how does that tie the whole Bible? And so then, like, these people started, like, really working these, like, these themes out. Like, what's the relationship with Israel and Gentiles and all this? And, um, yeah, and there's a lot of good stuff. So, all right. Yeah, all right. Cliffhanger.